Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sadudicato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what steps we can take to find meaning and reach balance. In this episode, we're talking about perfection, the shadow, and the way the martyr archetype shows up in our relationship with food. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. The sun's glow dims as it falls beneath the horizon, and with it dims the noise of the world around me. Late night summer dusk is a near guarantee that everyone has gone home, been fed, and begun dreaming up adventures of tomorrow. In the darkness of night, early morning ambitions and anxieties have quelled. The bustling has slowed. Expectations ceased. There now exists much fewer ways for a girl to disappoint herself. Was I good enough today? Did I perform well enough for those who needed me? These are not conscious questions, questions that know themselves, but rather an unconscious frenzy that releases within, trying to free me, until tomorrow at least, from the need to distort, to please, to be perfect. A yes and a no will lead me to the same vice, but with different intentions. There is both a celebration and punishment in either answer. If I was good, I can celebrate that I did what was expected of me. The punishment is that I had to sacrifice myself to do it. If I was not good, I failed at contorting myself to please others, and for that, I deserve punishment. But at least there still stands a chance that the reason I failed for others was because I showed up for myself, as myself, which is worthy of celebration. In this darkness, there also unveils an emptiness that has been distracted away all day, an unconquerable longing which reveals itself and demands appeasement in order for me to stand a chance at surviving another day. This emptiness can't be filled in the daylight of the connected world because there's no room for me there. It can only be fed in the darkness. That was an excerpt from a blog post of mine on thehungryfeminine.com called The Illusory Totality of the Codependent Eater. And what we're talking about on today's episode is perfection, uh, the martyr archetype, and the ways in which some of us utilize food to keep us in a state of denial about our own shadow while we chase our own tails in futility, seeking out a perfection that doesn't exist. Perfectionism is a common trait among those of us with eating disorders or disordered eating patterns. Uh, And by the way, when I say eating disorders or disordered eating patterns, I'm drawing the distinction on purpose. Um, Eating disorders essentially means you've been diagnosed with an eating disorder by a mental health or medical professional. Disordered eating patterns means you've noticed a glitch in the system, essentially. Uh, A disorder in the way you consume food, which indicates that something's off for you. Um, The disordered eating part, that's self-defined. That's you determining that something else has a hold of your life and it's getting the way of other more desirable functioning. 
And there really doesn't need to be anything particularly pathological in either of these. We're humans doing the best that we can. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There is no imaginary line that puts the healthy, well-adjusted people on one side and the ill, screwed-up people on the other. That is not how it works. We're all struggling with something. And use of disordered here doesn't imply otherwise. It's simply calling attention to something, being out of sync with how you personally would rather be doing it. So now that we've got that out of the way, right? Perfectionism. We strive for it. We use food as our way to get there. And this happens in myriad ways. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, she wrote the book, The Women Who Run With the Wolves. Highly recommend reading that book, by the way. She talks about the too good, too demanding dynamic that oftentimes unfolds in women based on how we're socialized in a masculine-driven culture. Um, this masculine-driven culture, it aims to control us. And anyone who dare demonstrate any inkling of feminine intuition. So in other words, the creatives, the imaginatives, uh, the feelers, the people who are startlingly good at being present without feeling obligated to productivity. Um, highly sensitive people. And yes, generally speaking, women. And also anyone challenging the construct of binary gender or binary sexuality. Those people are typically the subject of society's attempt to repress. They want to control us. They want to keep us complying with their instructions so that we don't do what's happening right now in America, where the status quo that's been in power for hundreds of years is being questioned. We're simply asking, hey, what's so special about you that you have all the power? Old, white, straight, cis, able-bodied men. Why do you have all the power? The reason somebody is calling to make America great again is because they want to hold on to that power rather than recognize that there are other perspectives, other people with plans for the greater good, because they uproot everything we've taught to be true all along. And when that happens, you can either be scared of that change and fight to control those who are calling for it, or you can join the revolution and be part of that change. Uh, so there was a little political tangent, which isn't even political because it's it's not really about politics. It's about our mental and emotional well-being as people and how those are not isolated from our larger communities. In other words, our mental health and our emotional health is it's not those are not the product of an isolated environment. Our families, our social circles, our communities and our culture at large, they all influence how well we are or how well we are not. So when I speak up about things happening at, you know, <laughs> quote, a political level in our country, it isn't because of policy or political opinions that I have, but rather how mental health professionals really ought to be treating individuals as, as part of a collective, recognizing the larger forces on top of individual struggles and accountability that create the type of pain that we see every day. And I think as mental health professionals, we tend to, you know, we we stay blank on those things. We want to be a blank slate. We don't want to put our political opinions out there. And I, I agree with that. But I also think we need to get louder about certain things as a part of client-centered advocacy because, again, our, our pain and our client's pain and the pain of others around us, they don't exist in a bubble. Uh, okay, so now I've gone off on multiple tangents. <laughs> but the too good, too demanding dynamic that Clarissa Pinkola Estes lays out. Um, this is in The Women Who Run With the Wolves. 
it helps us understand how perfection and eating disorders, um, specifically the behaviors of restricting and binging, play out within us. So restricting, the act of denying ourselves food. Uh, that's common in anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, which I think people are uninformed about. Binging and restricting cycles are common because when we restrict our food, the natural physiological and psychological response is going to be to overeat. We need the calories. We need the fuel. We need to no longer be empty. Even if being empty in the first place felt empowering. I know for me, when I go through restrictive cycles, um, which still happens unconsciously from time to time, I'm not, you know, being the, the voice and the face of the hungry feminine doesn't mean that I've got it all figured out and I've mastered this. I still struggle with this. It's a constant thing for me. So I do go through restrictive cycles sometimes and I have to be like, whoa, what are you doing? Because I know what I'm doing and that awareness should be enough to slow it down, but sometimes it isn't. But, but when I go through restrictive cycles, there's an illusion of control in there. It makes me feel powerful. The idea that I can deprive my own body and get a reaction from my body is empowering. Uh, for some people, in some in iterations, it can be used as self-harm. In other ways, it can be seen as playing into that perfection role. So the perfection piece doesn't necessarily connect to the body itself. In other words, related to weight. It may for some. Uh, but truly having the experience of binge eating disorder, I can tell you that I struggle from perfectionism as much as somebody with anorexia. And it's not about the perfection of how I look. It's about the perfection of how I behave. One of my core beliefs, that's a CBT <laughs> term, but mythology that I hold about myself and my worth and how I'm allowed to show up in the world, which was created when I was too young to have any say over it, is that I'm a burden. I get in the way. I cause trouble. I can be destructive. And the destruction that I'm capable of, it isn't actual destruction. It's, it's almost a distraction in and of itself to blind me to my own shadow, which is where I am actually capable of destruction. If that makes any sense. <laughs> I'll get back to that as we continue through this wild journey that we're on in this episode. Um, but essentially, I believe that I am tasked with making things better and easier for everyone around me, not including myself. So I perform accordingly. This is where um, martyrdom is born, really. You can hear it in what I just said, because it makes my entire existence about two things, serving other people, anticipating their needs, and meeting those needs before the other person even knows that they have that need. And essentially apologizing for myself out of fear of myself without actually addressing the thing about myself that I'm most afraid of. So instead of acknowledging my own shadow, which everybody has a light and everybody has a shadow. Every archetype has a light. Every archetype has a shadow. There's light and shadow in all things. And that's okay. The problem is that we fear the shadow and we spend our lives running away from the shadow and making up other narratives about what it all is. And so for me, I had convinced myself that I was bad, but not in any real, honest, authentic way. In other words, I wasn't really accepting my own shadow, but I was reacting to conscious things around me and reactions that I would get from people that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. And so it was my task to do as much good as I could to offset that. Now, let me be clear. 
those core beliefs, like most core beliefs, are total bullshit. I'm not a burden. I've done hardly any terrible things in my life because of the fear that I've had about my self-worth. And I do have a shadow, but that doesn't make me bad because everybody has a shadow. That makes me human. But when you're unconsciously acting on a core belief, there's no time for fact-checking. You're merely just trying to survive. And in order to survive, I have to be perfect for everybody else. That's the voice of the martyr. So when I'm being perfect for everybody else, I don't eat. I can't eat. There's no room in my body for food because I'm anticipating the needs of others. I'm morphing to become what they need me to be. I'm criticizing every little mistake that I've made. I'm judging myself for mistakes that I haven't even made yet. I'm apologizing to some other force. I don't even know what it is. Um, I'm just feeling like all I do is say the wrong things, right? And I'm carrying a degree of like annihilation anxiety, which is to say that because I'm such a burden and because I'm also powerless over myself, meaning I don't put myself first, so I don't even know how to take care of myself. That means I can be destroyed at any moment. And that becomes a breeding ground for panic attacks, persistent anxiety, uh, and the perpetuating of an eating disorder. Where is there time to eat in all of that? How could my body, being so beyond its window of tolerance 80% of the day, possibly tolerate intaking food? And even if it could intake food, even if that didn't feel like a total violation of my body to try to put food in my mouth and swallow it when... I'm on edge like that, but then I, I wouldn't even be able to digest the food. There's so much research on um, how poorly our body digests food when we're in states of extreme stress. So I, it can't, it's just not going to work. Plus there's this idea um, that I haven't earned the food yet. So it's only when it gets late at night and I've already fed everybody else that I feel like I've earned my food. And by then I am just simply exhausted. I'm starving, I'm dizzy, and I'm so excited to break this fast that the floodgates open and stopping becomes impossible. And so in that, um, not only is there that physiological response, there's the psychological one which says, finally, it's my time. I get to be fed now. Metaphorically, as much as literally, I can get lost in this. I can transcend through this. I can connect with something greater than me through this, which is great because I can't really connect with people in any genuine way throughout the day because I'm too busy dealing with, you know, the swirl of nonsense in my head and my heart all day. So do you see, do you see how addictive behaviors, including eating disorders, develop out of poor attachment, poor interpersonal styles? Because as primal humans, we need to connect. We need to feel close to other people. We need to belong. We need each other. But when relationships feel poison to you the way they have for me and they do for so many people, we just, we need to find a safer way, which is interesting because usually they're not actually safer ways, but to us, they feel like safer ways to connect to something. Drugs, alcohol, food, gambling, technology, these things allow us to like be the messy versions of ourselves that we just naturally are. But there's no judgment. There's no rejection. There's no asking for anything in return. There's no need to be perfect. There's no need to perform. And so that's the too demanding part 
of what Estes was writing about because a binge becomes a demand. It becomes this tornado that pushes itself through and says, I've given myself nothing all day. There's the too good piece. And now I want it all. Now I demand it all. Now I will not stop until I have it all. There's also a component of the too good, too demanding dynamic that leaves us why we can't get other things that we want. So in other words, I've been good. Why can't I get that job I've been wanting or that guy I think it's hot or that other opportunity that's just dangling in my face? I've been good. I took care of everybody. Where's my reward? And so that that reward doesn't come and that just perpetuates the cycle because that's not how it works. We don't get the riches of life through self-deprecation and self-deprivation. But that's the narrative of the martyr archetype. I've sacrificed everything. What do I get out of it? Sometimes that's love. Why don't you love me back? I'm trying to save you. Why don't you love me back? Sometimes it's other things. Right? So... That's a lot to carry through everyday life. (laughs) You know, that's a lot of self-hate. That's a lot of self-editing. That's a lot of self-ignoring. And there's no positive outcome to that. The behaviors have to change at their root before they even become behaviors when they're still just thoughts. I recently noticed an interesting channeling of this idea of the too good, too demanding dynamic uh, when I was driving. I think road rage is such an interesting way to get to know ourselves because it's like 99% projection. I mean, yes, there are people who perform dangerous acts on the road that could actually harm us. But more often than not, what we're getting frustrated at is some behavior that duplicates some other behavior that we feel we've, we attract, some, some negative way that we feel we're always treated. And the truth is we don't know the people in the car. We don't even sometimes know who the person is, what they look like. You know, it's just a car. It's just so easy to project onto because it's such a blank slate and it's so distant and outside of us. And so I just find road rage to be so interesting in terms of like giving us insight. And so I, in the past, have gotten intense road rage and I would lose my mind at the behavior of other people. Until I realized it really didn't have anything to do with them. Even if they were driving dangerously and selfishly, what was really happening was I was reacting in most cases to their unapologetic space taking. Here I was spending all day trying to be small, invisible, except to provide to others. I was disappearing. And here they are just taking up space, not caring about if they get in somebody else's way not making any apologies, not going home and torturing themselves for hours, just living their lives. How dare they? How dare they do the one thing that we're all actually entitled to, but that I've struggled with my whole life to give myself permission for. And it's just, again, a prime example of projection. I was so frustrated with my own self, my own limitations, my own shadow that I'm in denial about at this time. And so I just throw it all up on uh, in rage at these people who have nothing to do with any of it. And to me, that's an argument for how doing our own work makes us better citizens to each other. 
So that brings me back to my opening excerpt from that post of mine on my website. It's called The Illusory Totality of the Codependent Eater and the illusory totality that comes from Marion Woodman. Uh, Marion Woodman was a Jungian analyst, a mythopoetic author. Um, she was just so special to the community of people trying to understand eating disorders. She, she provided such a wealth of insight. Um, she talks about, well, she talks about a lot of really critical things in relationship to women and food, but one of which is how this codependent eater, the person I've outlined here, can use food to replace missing forces of energy in her life where she's otherwise depriving herself for the sake of others. Because the thing is, the binge eater, and I've, I think I said in my first episode, the binge eater doesn't just apply to people with binge eating disorder. Anybody can binge eat. Even people with anorexia, even people with bulimia, even people who don't have any eating disorders whatsoever, the process of binge eating is a universal thing that anybody can tap into if that's where they are, you know, being called to sort of do this work. So the binge eater, regardless of whether or not she purges, can't eat and be in the real world at the same time. Food is no longer a means of satisfying a primal need or providing her body with nutrition and energy in this state. Food instead becomes a portal to another dimension. And so I'm going to read a quote from Woodman on the illusory totality. She says, gradually her hunger for life, her sexual hunger, her spiritual hunger, all converge into one explosive desire for the forbidden food. Suddenly all the limitations which she cannot face in herself vanish and the perfection which she craves seems possible. The conflict seems to be resolved in the momentary satisfaction of filling herself with sweetness, which to her means life and love. Momentarily, she is queen in her domain. She has incorporated into herself the numinosity of food and become identified with it. The drive for wholeness builds, and with it, the desire for losing herself and finding herself in the ecstasy of oblivion. All is resolved in her surrender to an illusory totality, and she passes into sleep, end quote. And what's interesting here is that there's a sudden allowance for badness, for breaking the rules with the forbidden food, while still somehow finally finding it possible to achieve perfection. It's that wholeness, or the illusion of such, that gives this codependent eater life. But outside of this illusory totality, in other words, when you wake up in the morning with an aching tummy, the illusion has been popped. And in the wakeful hours, the daylight, the social time of day, perfection is impossible. Therefore, constantly striving for it every waking second is a torment. And that can slow life down in so many ways. A few years back, uh, I was working through some creative projects and got really, really, really stuck. I thought that I was experiencing another episode of depression, which I'm prone to, obviously. I mean, you don't have the sort of mental pollution that I described earlier and live a bubbly, happy life. You know what I mean? Um, but the more curious I became about whatever that stuckness was that I was in, um, the more I realized it was a little more nuanced than depression. It maybe was depression, but a certain kind of depression, which I called perfection inertia. And to me, that's the idea that if I can't do something perfectly, I can't or shouldn't do it at all. 
And this leads to a lot of paralysis, a lot of self-blame, criticism for not being able to do anything because it's just like you're, you're stuck in the mud. Striving for perfection is an unattainable goal every single time. It's never going to happen. And as a result, not being able to move forward or try new things or be vulnerable or mess up and learn all of the things that make life worth living become things that I'm not allowed to do or able to do. And so instead of doing those things, I was stuck. I was an object at rest, stuck at rest, because the perfection inertia made it impossible to move. I mean, even now, the idea of releasing this podcast, it's its wild to me. It makes me feel so uneasy. I don't even know what I'm doing. Every public opinion I've ever expressed online at some point in my life, I've erased it. Because I hate the idea of my opinions or my philosophies lasting forever in one medium unchanged. Because I often change my mind. And I, I think that that's typically a good thing. Because as I get new information, I listen to other perspectives, I grow, I evolve. That's a positive thing. But it can make old ideas sound archaic and offensive, maybe even. So I'm stuck in this place of not allowing myself to open up to be seen and heard, to talk about what I believe is important, because I'm afraid that as I continue to grow, this is going to be something that I regret. As a therapist, we're taught not to self-disclose. So this is going to be something that I regret. But what I know to be true that challenges those negative beliefs is that before I'm a therapist, I'm a human being. And in fact, really, in order to be a good therapist, I need to be a whole human being. <laughs> So really, this is me sharpening myself as a therapist, in fact, and clients who gravitate toward this work will likely feel the most comfortable with me. Um, and those who don't may not. And that's okay, because I don't need to be all things to all people. So right there is one way to move through perfection inertia, right? Not having the path figured out, but moving anyway. I was talking to a friend the other day about this podcast, and she was offering me advice on how to do it professionally. And she said that she's like, she gave me a referral for somebody who could help and I thought, how awesome would that be? And maybe someday that's the path that I take. But right now, I need to release this thing as a messy little thing that maybe doesn't sound very professional. And maybe the sound quality is imperfect. And my cover art is just like some random thing that I threw together really quickly. Whatever. But it's the messiness that makes it worthwhile to me now. Because I could wait another five years to get it right and never make a move. Because the perfection inertia is going to just swallow me up like quicksand. So at least now I'm in motion. And if Newton was onto something, and I think that he was, um, now I can stay in motion. A few years back, I had made a mistake at work, at my corporate job. Nothing major, but I felt terrible about it. And I couldn't let it go. I was being so hard on myself. And my whole nervous system was completely out of whack. So I called up a friend of mine. And I was like, listen, I need to talk. So I went to his place, and I explained what happened. And it must have sounded ridiculous to him because it was so small, but it was consuming me. I had no perspective. And he looked at me with kind eyes and said, how are you generally with being fallible? <laughs> and there was something about that question that I just, I froze in response. The word fallible felt so threatening and accusatory in some way. 
But that's the point, because I can't deal with having made a mistake. I can't tolerate the gross, messy in-between of having messed up without being able to fix it. Or even if I could fix it, there'd still be some kind of irreversible mark on me for having made the mistake in the first place. And this is wildly unfair. This is an unrealistic expectation to hold about ourselves. We are not perfect. We are going to make mistakes. We should be making mistakes. And so by torturing myself every time I make a mistake, that would just lead me to more and more and more of the cycle of restricting and binging. And to my credit, it was a step in the right direction at all that I even reached out to that friend. Um, because making mistakes makes me feel shameful. And so talking about it with him was very helpful in lessening that shame. I always say shame is like a vampire. Not only because it sucks every drop of energy from you, but also because it thrives in the darkness. So when you start to talk about what you're ashamed of with somebody that you trust, it's like opening the shades of a window and letting the sunlight in, which eventually weakens and kills the vampire or the shame. So when I think of all those things, all those core beliefs, the negative narratives that essentially silenced me, stole my voice like a tight hand across my lips, um, and the way that I reached out to food in order to manage all of it, I can't help but wonder what was I actually hungry for? Because it wasn't food, not really, only in an I'm human and have to eat sort of way, but I was hungry for so much more. And... You know, Woodman explicitly talks about the spiritual hunger, but I think I was also hungry for apologetic self-expression. Um, finding balance between masculine and feminine that doesn't leave me feeling helpless or without agency. You know, hungry to advocate for myself, even when I make a mistake, to still feel worthy of advocating for myself, forgiving myself. The ability to be myself, regardless of how contradictory it may be to how others are trying to define me. Another thing that Marion Woodman describes um, in The Owl Was a Baker's Daughter was a Christian myth based on a poem from Alfred de Vigny about Eloa, who was the sister of angels, the daughter of Christ. She was an angel that never descended to earth. Her purpose to console. She is, quote, the celestial archetype of those mortal women who give their lives to suffering men, hoping to redeem them. Okay? Are you with me here? <laughs> I'm going to reread that. She is the celestial archetype of those mortal women who give their lives to suffering men, hoping to redeem them. She yearns to descend into hell to save her brothers who were exiled there. I mean, she wants to give up heaven for hell so she can save men. This is where we see that martyr archetype again. Essentially, the story is of her falling in love with Lucifer because he is in opposition to God and she wants to fix him. And this would also allow her to be the perfect daughter to God the Father. And there's something naive there. She could be so easily seduced by Lucifer, but still not recognize her own darkness, right? It's going back to that not being able to see our shadow, 
for what it really is, right? Convincing ourselves on some surfacey, you know, nonsense level that we're bad, that we're a burden, and that we have to redeem ourselves, but never going deep enough to recognize that, no, there is a part of us that's dark. And we don't have to apologize for that. And that doesn't make us outcasts or weird or unique. Everybody experiences that. She is, quote, blinded by her own evil and inflated by her own desire to save, end quote. That's the martyr. Trying to be good, staying away from the capacity for evil, and not only using good behavior, perfect behavior, infallible behavior, some might say, (laughs) to earn her keep on earth, but also using that goodness to inflate herself. To keep her just a few steps ahead of everybody else because she's made herself a savior and saviors can't possibly be evil. And so keep in mind that in most cases, this all stems from the female relationship with her father or the father complex and the impact of the father complex on individuation, outward projection of the animus, sexuality, All things that I'm going to get into in future episodes because, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. There's so much to talk about there. What I'll say for now, though, is that this modern incarnation of Eloa won't tolerate the harm from men or the harm from God, the father, the father complex anymore. She won't do it. However, by still refusing to take responsibility for her own shadow, her own inner devil, She instead projects him out onto the masculine world with anger for having killed her femininity. The problem is that she doesn't recognize that this act of revenge against the masculine for destroying the feminine. Which, if you listen to my first episode or have read anything on the blog, is what I'm saying is sort of happening at a cultural level. What she doesn't recognize is that it's also a form of self-murder because she's trying to destroy outside of herself what lives and breathes within her that she can't see or accept. And by taking that step of revenge, it doesn't actually help her revive or redeem the feminine the way she thinks it does. It's just destroying it and herself in the process. So when we're in conflict like that, deflecting our shadow, deflecting our devil, projecting it outward onto whomever we believe to be the actual incarnation of the devil, we suffer in the end because we're only killing ourselves. I have this um, silly analogy for owning the shadow that I, I think is actually pretty helpful. If you've ever been to a Six Flags park around Halloween, they have something called Fright Fest. It's a very theatrical (laughs) uh, Halloween-themed situation where there are actors roaming about the park who are dressed up as zombies and vampires and, you know, all sorts of evil mythological characters that we know and love. (laughs) Um, And they... They each act out certain ways of trying to scare the guests that are walking around the park. So they'll, you know, slam a shovel into the ground right in front of you and create sparks to go off or, you know, come up behind you revving a chainsaw and like all sorts of weird stuff. And as much as I love Halloween, I scare easy. I'm a very jumpy person. And so I don't love, 
getting attacked by these people while I'm walking around the park. And so what I recognized was if I looked them in the eye, if I saw them as I was walking along the path and I was like, oh, there's a zombie over there eyeing me up, I would make eye contact with them. And guess what? They wouldn't come after me. Because in the process of making eye contact with them, what I was essentially saying was, I see you. I accept that you're here. I'm not asking you to leave. But I see you. And here we are coexisting together. (laughs) They don't want to attack somebody that sees them. They want to go after the people that they're going to sneak up on, the people that don't see them coming. And that's the thing about our shadow is that when we ignore our shadow or we pretend it's not there, we convince ourselves that we're above it or beyond it or whatever, or we're too scared of it to acknowledge it and accept it, then we're vulnerable to it. Because we're like, eyes closed, fingers in our ears, la la la, nothing's happening, right? That's where darkness gets you. But if you look at your shadow and you say, I see you and I respect that you're a part of this whole thing. And I'm not asking you to leave. And yeah, maybe I'm a little wary of you. I don't really know what's going on over here. But you're a part of me. And here you are. And here I am. And we can coexist. You're less likely to be crept up on by your shadow. There's a common fear that if we embrace our shadow, we're going to start acting in evil ways. That we're going to become the devil. But the truth is that denying, avoiding, escaping, running away from our shadow... All of the effort that we put into that, all of the blindness that we experience in that process, that's the stuff that actually causes us to harm other people and spiritually harm ourselves. So we've got to do something about this perfectionism, this need to be good, this obsession with not having any darkness in us at all. We've got to stop utilizing martyrdom to feel righteous about ourselves. So Eloa loses herself in this process. She quote, personifies that sweet maid who swings between taking responsibility for the devil himself and taking no responsibility at all. End quote. She finds the devil in others around her to save, but then she disappears into herself in a profound state of denial. And by doing so, she, quote, fails to become a human woman who can look herself straight in the eye and accept her limitations and her strengths. End quote. And so for many of us, this disappearing act, this inability to take responsibility, happens ritualistically through food. That's where the disorder comes from in the eating process. About a year ago, I had begun taking the Hungry Feminine out of just the context of my thesis and into something a little bit more accessible. And I had a dream about my masculine and feminine in that process. I was stirring some stuff up. And the images that I saw were alarming. And so I drew them, personified. And what I recognized was exactly what woman describes in her parallel to the Eloa myth, which is that my masculine had suffered a great attack. He was worn down. He was defeated. He still held, despite that, a little bit of a spark of anger for the assault that he'd suffered at the hands of my feminine. Um, who was the one seeking to destroy him, but essentially he was broken down. And the thing is, is that she wasn't happy or strong either. She was pretending to be. But by attempting murder on my masculine, she was acting completely out of her nature. She was responding only to fear of her own darkness. 
and decided that all of the evils were his fault and that she therefore needed to dismantle him. But the thing is, is that what I saw in her face was in fact that very shadow that she was trying to run away from. It was wicked. She was obsessed with control. She believed herself to be righteous when in fact she had destroyed her own self and she destroyed everything she knew herself to be. And so I drew these characters. They're actually on the blog. And I had called the post making amends with my masculine. The alternative title was Game of Thrones, A Storm of the Psyche, because that's what it felt like. My understanding of the dynamic between them has evolved so much over time. But what I knew immediately upon discovering them was that their disharmony was why I was suffering so much in my life. They were not team players at all. An archetypal war was waging inside of me and nobody was winning. And so I have found my shadow to be an immense gift, a strange one that I'm still getting to know. Um, and I'm not done with it. And I can't imagine that I'll ever be done with it. You know, uncovering all of the new things about it all the time, all the things that I've been sort of blocked from knowing about it. But to be bad, imperfect, fallible, <laughs> that damn word, fallible, um, and to remove expectations that I needed to be anybody's savior. These are the things that I actively had to practice every day. I still have to practice them every day. I have to sometimes consciously refocus to a state of accepting them. And it's a pain in the ass, but that's the work for me. And some days don't go very well. And I can feel it. I can feel it failing in my body. I can feel it failing in my urges to overeat. I can feel it failing in urges to indulge in my emotional state to the point that nothing else matters. But then there are days where I make mistakes or act out poor decisions almost in order to prove that I won't spontaneously combust or cease to exist or commit actual evil or lose everybody who's ever loved me because that's a legitimate fear, right? That's terrifying. And sometimes I'd have a panic attack in response and other times I would just get there. And so that's the work. It starts with knowing this stuff. It starts with understanding this stuff. And knowing and understanding this stuff can take a lifetime in and of itself. As I said before, my understanding of the relationship between feminine and masculine for me, my understanding of my relationship with food has evolved so much over the last couple of years. Sometimes as much as I feel a sense of clarity about it, it's equally confusing to me. But the point is, is that with each new piece of information, I try to take a different action that's informed by that piece of information and try out something new, try out something that I haven't done before and see what that feels like. And there's nothing perfect about that, but that's the point. Well, thank you for joining me here on the Feed the Feminine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to explore more, you can subscribe for updates on upcoming episodes, as well as head over to thehungryfeminine.com, where you can join the mailing list to stay in the loop. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Hungry Feminine. Thanks again for being here. See you next time.